I'm joining you today from New Hampshire, where the American Scottish Foundation has been hosting a Scottish village tent of information of partners who we work with. Information from the National Trust of Scotland, Scottish Heritage USA, National Galleries and Library of Scotland, the John Muir Trail in Scotland, the Lachlan Castle Restoration Project, Sorby Tower, and many other projects we're involved in at the American Scottish Foundation. It's been a wonderful weekend, and we're so glad to see the New Hampshire Highland Games back in full force. And now let us turn to this week's episode of The Scots in Us. And I am so honored to have been able to speak with Charles Lord Bruce, heir to the current chief, Lord Andrew Elgin, 11th Earl of Elgin, and 15th Earl of Kincardine. Lord Bruce is tireless in his support of Scotland's heritage, and he takes us on a journey of over 300 years of the Bruce family's involvement in Scottish art. From the 16th to the 19th century, he shows the incredible contributions that private families like the Bruce's have made and the important role they play in the creation of cultural identity. Their story begins in the 16th century in a period just after the Reformation, when families like the Bruce's trading prosperously with other parts of Europe and importing ideas that were of architectural importance. Lord Bruce takes us through the rest of his family history all the way up until the 19th century and the art and culture that is currently on display in Broom Hall, the home of the family Bruce. And so let us begin by joining in conversation with myself, with Lord Bruce. Today, the American Scottish Foundation is very honored to be in conversation with Charles Lord Bruce, eldest son of the heir to Andrew Bruce, 11th Earl of Elgin and 37th Chief of the, the name of Bruce. Lord Bruce is tireless in his support of Scottish culture, arts and heritage. And today we join him at Broom Hall to speak of the contribution of the Bruce's to Scotland's art history and the Bruce's family role within it. You are now going to be taken on a journey from the 16th to 19th century. And so without more ado, may I now hand over to Charles. Thank you, Camilla. And thank you very much for focusing on this uh, particular branch of endeavor of the family. <laughs> Although, um, uh, I think it'd probably be correct to say that um, different generations have had different intentions of how they have acquired or commissioned or patronized art or artists and probably had a very different view of what role they were playing in disseminating um, the uh, fine art at the, at the time they, they were living. But I think overall what we're focusing on is how contributions of families like mine, and of course there are other <laughs> long-lived families uh, of equal prominence uh, who've been very uh, much to the fore in, in, in collecting history. But what role private families have made in the creation of cultural identity, um, I think that's really the message I'm trying to get across uh, today in this, in this uh, short podcast. And I, yes, we are starting in the 16th century, in the period just after the Reformation, at a time when people uh, mostly connect Scotland with being a dark and, and dismal place, as the reformers 
uh, went about smashing up uh, all the incredible religious art that we had uh, accumulated since the 12th century. Um, but it's equally true that some families like mine were trading prosperously with other parts of Europe and importing ideas, which uh, became of architectural importance. And I think the story really begins at the end of the 16th century in the tiny little seaport of Curras on the River Forth, where Sir George Bruce, uh, a distant ancestor of mine, um, established one of the most successful mining and export businesses of its time in Scotland, maybe sinking the deepest coal mine in Northern Europe, um, which was able to supply a con a continuously <laughs> trade to mostly to places like uh, Flanders and the um, Hanseatic countries of Baltic and principally Amsterdam, the Dutch. And in return, um, he was able to command, I suppose the technical term is very high terms of trade um, because the coal was worth so much. They also exported salt as well. And so he was able to embellish his merchant's house in Curras with very fine interior decoration. I think what you found at that time is that people tended to put in paneling uh, to make the interior slightly warmer and more uh, conducive to comfortable living. And in the winter months, there were itinerant um, house painters who came around from different parts of Northern Europe, bringing Renaissance um, uh, sort of iconography and, and ideas with them and painted beautiful scenes inside your, uh, in, in, inside your castle or your merchant's house. And anyone visiting uh, Kuras Palace today in the hands of the National Trust will be aware of the very beautifully uh, colored interiors, which the, this slide shows. And then in the same generation, the family was also involved in what could only be described as the most audacious reverse takeover in constitutional history. When a Scottish King, James VI, was able to secure the English line of succession after Elizabeth I, whereas most of his ancestors from centuries before had fought off English invasion attempts, Scotland with less than 10% of the population of England was able effectively uh, to uh, manage a reverse takeover. So James swept south in 1603-1604 with his courtiers in the vanguard was George Bruce's brother Edward who had served as the last ambassador from Scotland to England and had paved the way for the succession. Um, and one of the things which the Scots brought with them were very sophisticated ideas of the Renaissance, particularly in terms of building and architecture, because James had married Anne of Denmark, who came from a very um, uh, sophisticated court of northern, uh, in the Northern Renaissance. And she had commissioned a beautiful house in the middle of Dunfermline Palace, which sadly is no longer there. She had cut her teeth in commissioning local architects um, and was able to single out the young uh, mask maker and set designer Inigo Jones uh, when they arrived in London. And he was sent to copy Palladio, uh, built buildings by Palladio, and filled up a sketchbook of Palladian drawings. Um, and that's really how the uh, refinement of the Italian Renaissance arrives in England. The family was involved in one generation 
in helping to bring ideas across uh, the North Sea from Northern Europe um, and disseminating them more widely um, in other parts of, of the British Isles. And that, uh, if you like, that tradition of patronage and influence continued into the next century, in the 17th century. And um, the uh, uh, head of the family in the middle of the 17th century fighting as a royalist in the Civil War was Alexander Bruce, second Earl of Kincardine, whose portrait appears on this slide. And he had gone into exile um, in the Dutch Republic at The Hague, uh, attached to the court of the Winter Queen, Elizabeth Stuart, who was the daughter of the marriage of James VI and Anne of Denmark, a very sophisticated court that she ran in exile. And there he marries uh, a Dutch heiress, um, uh, Veronica uh, van Arsen van Sommelsdijk, a very cultivated, uh, influential family. And we have an amazing collection of Dutch court paintings by Jan Meitens Jr. from that time. The painting you see here of Alexander and also hanging in the dining room around him, his wife and her sisters and her mother and her brother all representing the kind of flower of the Dutch golden age of merchant classes, who was, uh, whose prosperity was on a very different stratosphere from what people were able to achieve in Scotland. So after the uh, failure of the Commonwealth um, and, the, and the restoration of Charles II, the Scottish nobility who'd been in exile returned to Scotland with money to spend and commissioned new um, country houses, new dwellings, principally built by uh, Alexander Bruce's cousin, William Bruce, who builds the Palace of Holyrood House for King Charles II, and very fine country houses for Charles's courtiers and followers in Scotland. Arguably the finest of all is his own house, uh, Kinross House, um, which is slightly further north from where I'm speaking. But I think the, the important point is that um, Alexander and his Dutch wife Veronica bring with them Dutch artists and craftsmen, um, principally uh, a cartographer called Sletzer, who sets out to map and draw and record uh, towns and cities and principal buildings throughout Scotland um, in a compendium he produces called the Theatrium Scotiae. And I think that's really the first um, statement if you like, of good taste that's emerging from Scotland, trying to catch up with other parts of Europe that these Scots emigres would have visited, uh, would have stayed in nice places and would have wanted to have matched the level of sophistication they found in other European countries, um, which they're perfectly capable of doing. We had some of the finest stonemasons anywhere in, in Europe. But we probably had to import joiners and plaster workers. And because there was so much work to go around, many of them stayed here and settled and, and uh, descendants are still living in Scotland. Um, so it was a very sort of thorough process, not only of introducing ideas and improving taste, but also improving skills as well um, as uh, um, artisans and craftsmen came uh, to settle in Scotland. And also through our project, the Scots who built New York, we've seen the huge contribution of Scotland's engineers and masons, as you speak of, to all that happened over here in the United States from the 1700s on. Well, we're going to come on to that in the next century. <laughs> You're rushing ahead, Camilla. 
No, I just wanted but, to finish but off. What I mean is that yeah. they it was they've been such an integral part, as you say, yeah. as they spread but, around the world. There was just one other image I wanted to point out, and that's this Letzer drawing of the house where I live at Curras, which shows this magnificent palace as if standing on the Rhine, or like the Villa d'Este, with um, the gardens tumbling down below. It just gives a very good indication of how people wanted their homes to be portrayed. I mean, even if the gardening was never <laughs> of that uh, um, sophistication, it's, it's basically the idea they wanted to put across, and that was again, going back to what we said at the very beginning, was a very important manifestation of the cultural identity of one of being very sophisticated, possibly comparing themselves to the English and wanting to appear to be just as, um, just as polished, culturally speaking. So if we go on to the 18th century and getting uh, closer to that period when um, Scottish architectural ideas uh, settle in the United States, um, the family home here at Broom Hall goes through three building stages, 1702, 1766, and uh, 1798. I've got a, an architectural drawing by John Adam of 1766 that appears on this slide with the wife of the builder, Martha Countess of Elgin, who's shown here in a beautiful, uh, almost um, very feminine painting by Alan Ramsay, the Scottish portrait painter who makes his way to London and becomes appointed to George III and, and Queen Charlotte. And she's shown here uh, sitting very demurely with um, a white rose in, in her bodice. And the house that was built, uh, sadly, we have no idea really what it looked like because it was incorporated in a later house, would have been similar in proportion to Dumfries House, which John Adam had built a few years before. And it really represents the status uh, of a Scottish country gentleman of that time. Um, a house big enough to, to entertain all your friends, put your put uh, horses and carriages up in the stable block and the kitchen able to supply a continuous stream of delicious meals. Um, and that's really what it was all about. Um, and I think uh, the, the house uh, becomes unfashionable by the end of the 18th century and is rebuilt in a Greek revival style by an English architect, Harrison of Chester. Um, the interesting thing is that we have at least 13 different sets of architectural drawings by as many architects, most of which, the vast majority of which have, <laughs> have never actually been built. So that's really what I was referring to as the architectural fantasy. And um, the, the house is finished in 1798, as I said, the owner, the seventh Earl. Um, the uh, has been appointed as British ambassador to the Ottoman Empire, and he goes to take up residence in Istanbul with the particular um, cultural mission that he wants to achieve, even though it's not supported by the British government, is to make a full inventory in drawing and in plaster of all the surface sculptural detail of the Acropolis, which is obviously part of the Turkish Empire. Greece had been part of the Turkish Empire for 400 years. So I've got a series of, of pictures, of images here, which indicate um, the ambition that, that he had. Um, and then more importantly, perhaps, the idea how that is disseminated more widely into what is, becomes known as the Greek revival, which comes into effect after the Napoleonic Wars are finished. Um, and it stretches everywhere. Every European city is touched with it, obviously including Washington. 
or principal buildings in Edinburgh have been rebuilt, um, often by architects like Playfair, who have trained under architects who had access to Elgin's drawings that he'd commissioned in Athens. So the most accurate representation of Greek art is taken up with alacrity in Scotland. For example, the monument to Robert Burns um, on the edge of Colton Hill, just on London Road, in full view of visitors coming up to Edinburgh from the south, is based on the tragic temple of Lysocrates, uh, which would have been in a very prominent position in Athens, uh, re recording um, the status of the most important writers and literary figures in Athenian society. So the Scots chose that idiom, if you like, to represent uh, what they thought of Robert Burns in retrospect. Um, and the, the monument was paid for by emigre Scots, mostly living in India, <laughs> in Bombay, I think. Uh, and the Royal High School uh, was built, uh, again, with uh, plans from uh, buildings on the, on the Acropolis, the National Gallery, the Royal Academy, all the principal buildings, public buildings and buildings for organizations like the physicians and surgeons, were all built in the most polished and accomplished Greek revival style, thus earning Edinburgh uh, the nickname of um, Athens of the North. So I just wanted to kind of feed those ideas in that the family had a very important part to play in ensuring those ideas uh, had some currency. Um, the Seventh Earl also collected um, paintings, uh, old masters in Paris when he was released from prison by Napoleon in 1806. Uh, the room where I'm sitting displays most of those paintings. Um, uh, he also collected furniture, and there's an image here of, of French, the finest French furniture. And he was showered with gifts by the Sultan Massilian III. There's a most beautiful embroidered uh, saddle cover, which is also shown in this image, which would have been given him um, as, as ambassador. So the house still has quite uh, a good representation of the uh, very contemporary art and decorative arts that he was collecting at that time. So that takes us on into the 19th century. And there the, the story begins to change quite radically because <laughs> owing to the huge costs of making the collection of the Parthenon sculptures, which for which he was only reimbursed, I think, for half of his outlay, the, the subsequent generations following the seventh Earl, who died in 1841, found it very difficult to live here as gentlemen of leisure and had to actually go out and work and earn a living. So the Eighth Isle serves for over 20 years as a minister plenipotentiary all over the world, um, a governor general of Canada, negotiating the first North American free trade treaty. So we have an incredible collection still of Canadian memorabilia of that time, although we've given a lot of it to the Museum of Mankind in Ottawa and the Canadian library and archives. But I've got a few images here, possibly showing the first ever use of the maple leaf as a symbol of Canada, particularly of Canadian unity between the French and English speaking components of the population on a trowel, which was used to lay the foundation stone of the world's longest bridge in Montreal. And I think in 1854, which went on right across Canada uh, by the end of the 1870s, forming the Trans-Canadian uh, Railway Line. But this is the actual first uh, stage, if you like. Um, 
and having negotiated this treaty in the same year in Washington, he was then singled out as an expert in negotiating free trade treaties, something which the British wanted the world to adopt, as we had demonstrated three years before at Crystal Palace in London, um, with 100,000 objects displayed uh, for public edification, that trade would benefit everyone, uh, living standards would rise everywhere, um, as, as people were able um, you know, to, to improve their lives. And that was very much the message that he was taking to China in 1858, trying to bring to an end the Opium Wars. There's a picture here of him signing the trade treaty in Chanchin, uh, painted by a British naval officer. <laughs> he then uh, went on to, um, and there's a wonderful book of photographs we have from a little bit later by the Scottish photographer, John Thompson, who travels all over China, uh, taking these incredible um, images. Um, and then the Eitel goes on to, to, to Japan, and this is really where my story ends, because it's an incredible um, two-way process with Scotland, having opened up trade with Japan in 1858. There's a picture here of him signing the treaty uh, with the Japanese commissioners in, in, uh, in Edo, in Tokyo. Um, over the next 50 years, Scotland provides engineers and uh, engineering solutions, over a thousand locomotives, at least half the uh, Japanese fleet at the Battle of Tsushima in 1905 were built either on Clydebank or Tyneside. Um, and uh, 14 faculty members are recruited in 1872 by the Iwakura mission and packed off uh, to Japan uh, from all the main Scottish universities led by a young professor from Anderson College, which is now Strathclyde University, to establish a teaching program at the Imperial College of Technology, no, Engineering, sorry, the Imperial College of Engineering in Tokyo, which became Tokyo University. So the Scottish influence on the Meiji restoration in Japan was quite incredible. Uh, all the leading statesmen had either been through this university or had sent their children to it. Um, and the Scots, in return, I think it's true to say, absorb a lot of Japanese aesthetics which, which make their way into Scottish art by the end of the 19th century in ways which are really quite extraordinary. E.A. Hornell and Henry, who return with their canvases and have exhibitions and give lectures, but also um, artists like Whistler uh, exhibit in, in Glasgow, um, very much influenced by Japanese style. Whistler's uh, uh, painting of the Scottish historian, Thomas Carlyle, uh, was acquired by Glasgow City Corporation and was an extraordinarily important influence on young artists at that time who would come out from the art school. The art school itself, um, uh, in its second building, I think um, in the early 20th century, um, sadly, of course, it's still uh, under reconstruction after the fire, but the ironwork is um, full of extraordinary Japanese iconography that um, Charles Rennie Mackintosh uh, was so interested in, the heraldic devices, and much of the joinery inside uh, was influenced um, by Japanese uh, uh, traditional joinery design. The library itself, which tragically, of course, was destroyed in the fire, uh, was supposed to have been based on a Japanese interior. Um, uh, maybe quite a mundane uh, interior, a, a storeroom uh, for, for storing uh, furniture. 
These are ideas which came to Macintosh by a close friend of his called Mathesius, a German architect who'd worked in Japan for some time designing Lutheran churches. So the idea that uh, Japanese art was infecting um, uh, Scottish art and design by the end of the 19th century and influencing our Celtic revival, I think is incredibly important. And again, I, I um, put it to you that the family has an interesting walk on part in ensuring that that treaty was established in good time for these ideas to, to come here. Um, and I think I'll finish up with some images of Queen Victoria. There's a whole box of letters from her. I mean, her influence, simply the family doesn't escape. Um, one member of the family was very close to her, Augusta Bruce, who was a, a woman of the bedchamber. And there's a beautiful bust here of Augusta with Queen Victoria's image in the background. Um, Queen Victoria's bust in this house was uh, sculpted by her daughter, Princess Louise. And uh, Augusta uh, was uh, sculpted by her niece. So uh, two very gifted women artists have also made their contribution. And there's a, a bedroom upstairs, I think appears in this slide, uh, which I think was used for a model shoot. That's why there's a beautifully dressed young lady sitting on the bed. But it's absolutely packed to the gunnels of uh, black and white lithographs of Queen Victoria's family. Um, so, I mean, this family, like many, don't escape uh, the, the, the Victorian era lightly. Um, and I think when visitors come to the house, they're very interested to see that. So I'd be delighted to answer any questions after this very rapid <laughs> foray through Scottish art history. Uh, well, what I really wanted to, to say was it is also possible for people to um, arrange to visit Broom Hall and you do do various groups and, um, it, and uh, visits can be arranged to, uh, and conferences can be arranged with you too. Yes, um, I've got over 70 um, tours and events this year. I'm not trying to use this as for any form of advertising. Oh, no, um, no, but I, but I think that there are people who would love to know that there could be the opportunity to do something special with you. Absolutely. I've, I've had several groups from North America already this year. I've had um, uh, the College of William and Mary, uh, a wonderful group brought by their um, uh, president, um, and many other groups. Um, uh, similarly, la uh, last year, I think we had a, uh, the Georgian Society from uh, from New York. I mean, there, there are many um, American groups that come here. Um, so I, I just think that it's so wonderful to see such preservation of Scottish art history through your family and all that you do. And um, so I, if there's any way that we can um, make sure that people understand that there is the opportunity to come to visit, then that would be, that's wonderful because it, you are such a, a time capsule. Cool. Well, thank you. But I also learn a great deal um, from groups. I'm not an art historian. Um, I, 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 I struggle to get through this. <laughs> I'm making too many mistakes. You're doing very I, well. I did economic and social history. Um, <laughs> So I, I learn a lot from art historians when they come here. They're very polite and point out if I've got some make, uh, useful uh, comparisons uh, with other collections too. Well, I know that the Georgian, the American friends of the Georgian group 
um, uh, have visited with you. One of their, yes, indeed. Uh, yes, their, their president, John Kinnear, is our is on our the ASF board, and he works um, to help us do the Scots who built New York series, and therefore he has pointed out so often the ties between the engineers and all that has been done in the stonemasons. It's not only the architects, but all the other trades that would come into the States that have done so much. The, the, I did, I, there was one thing I didn't mention because it's slightly um, uh, tangential, but um, the building of the White House, the executive mansion was entrusted to a Scottish clerk of works, a guy called Williamson who did recruit masons from Edinburgh. Whether he didn't, he couldn't find the right quality of North, in North America or whether he knew he could get it in Edinburgh, I'm not exactly sure, but certainly they did cross the Atlantic bearing with them. They're building essential building materials, particularly the lime they used for making the mortar. And that came from our lime kilns on the estate. So we did have a more material contribution to make in that sense to building your most, arguably your most important um, uh, house in, in North America, in the United States. And they, and they went over a few years ago to do the restoration of the stonework too. Yeah, the Historic Environment Scotland has helped to train um, National Park Service who look after the White House. And also the training center we set up on the estate in 1994 has been visited, well, has provided residential training uh, classes, courses for the National Park Service over the years. Um, so we keep that link going. So, Charles, thank you so much for joining us today and taking the time to um, give us this record, as well as um, everything else, of the huge historical impact your family has had and influence that Scotland has had on, the, on art. And I look forward to seeing you shortly in New York, I hope. Um, as we present you with the Wallace Award uh, later this year and um, to many visits in the near future. Thank you very much, Camilla. I really enjoyed participating in this programme. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today for this week's edition of The Scots in Us. We're so grateful to Lord Bruce for taking the time he did to prepare and share with us the history of the Bruce family and of Broom Hall. We will be presenting Lord Bruce later this month with the Wallace Board for his tireless uh, support and efforts in the world of Scottish art, heritage and culture, both at home and abroad. And so join us again for the next episode of The Scots in Us, which comes out the first and third Monday of the month. And for further information about the American Scottish Foundation, please visit our website. AmericanScottishFoundation.org. Until next time, thank you. Mm -hmm.